0: I will read all of chapter 21, but I want to first uh, uh, make a a comment. When I selected this text, it was just uh, uh, Friday night, I kind of started digging through recent stuff when I knew I was going to preach. And uh, yesterday when I uh, selected the title and I talked to Gary while he was driving back from Colorado, um, I have to admit the title sounds a bit odd right now that I think about it with Phil in the hospital, and I'm talking about leadership succession. It seems like I'm getting (laughs) itchy feet or something. But I I just want to tell you that that thought did not cross my mind. I'm going to ask Gary to read. This will be chapter 21.
1: And Jehoshaphat rested with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. Then Jehoram, his son, reigned in his place. He had brothers, the sons of Jehoshaphat, Azariah, Jehiel, Zechariah, Azrahu, Michael, and Shephathiah, all these were the sons of Jehoshaphat, king of Israel. Their father gave them great gifts of silver and gold and precious things with fortified cities in Judah, but he gave the kingdom to Jehoram because he was the firstborn. Now when Jehoram was established over the kingdom of his father, he strengthened himself and killed all his brothers with the sword and also others of the princes of Israel. Jehoram was 32 years old when he became king, and he reigned eight years in Jerusalem. And he walked in the way of the kings of Israel, just as the house of Ahab had done, for he had the daughter of Ahab as a wife, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Yet the Lord would not destroy the house of David because of the covenant that he made with David, and since he had promised to give a lamp to him and to his sons forever. In his days, Edom revolted against Judah's authority and made a king over themselves, so Jehoram went out with his officers and all his chariots with him, and he rose by night and attacked the Edomites who had surrounded him and the captains of the chariots. Then Edom has, thus Edom has been in revolt against Judah's authority to this day. At that time, Libnah revolted against his rule because he had forsaken the Lord God of his fathers. Moreover, he made high places in the mountains of Judah and caused the inhabitants of Jerusalem to commit harlotry and led Judah astray." And a letter came to him from Elijah the prophet, saying, Thus says the Lord God of your father David, Because you have not walked in the ways of Jehoshaphat your father, or in the ways of Asa king of Judah, but have walked in the way of the kings of Israel, and have made Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to play the harlot, like the harlotry of the house of Ahab, and also have killed your brothers, those of your father's household, who were better than yourself, Behold, the Lord will strike your people with a serious affliction, your children, your wives, and all your possessions, and you will become very sick with a disease of your intestines until your intestines come out by the reason of the sickness day by day. Moreover, the Lord stirred up against Jehoram the spirit of the Philistines and the Arabians who were near the Ethiopians. And they came up into Judah and invaded it and carried away all the possessions that were found in the king's house and also his sons and his wives so that there was not a son left to him except Jehoahaz, the youngest of his sons. After all this, the Lord struck him in his intestines with an incurable disease. Then it happened in the course of time after the end of two years that his intestines came out because of his sickness. So he died in severe pain and his people made no burning for him like the burning for his father's. He was 32 years old when he became king. He reigned in Jerusalem eight years and to no one's sorrow departed. However, they buried him in the city of David, but not in the tombs of the kings.
0: There is a cultural phenomena that we are in the final year of. I hadn't known much about this until two or three years ago, when one of the fellows that I worked with commented on it. And it is called The Game of Thrones. It's a television show on HBO. It's based on a book series that began in the mid-90s. It was written by a man named George R.R. Martin. And I guess the books were so good, so entertaining, uh, that Uh, Peter Jackson, the fellow that did the Lord of the Rings movies, once he'd heard of this first book, he talked to him about wanting to turn it into a movie, but the man declined. He didn't feel that his books would become a movie, a good movie. He felt there was too much detail. So he released another book. It came like three years later, another book five years later. So there's a lot of time between these books that he's releasing. And his readers became impatient His third book, I think it was, was 1,500 pages long. The uh, publisher had great difficulty with getting it bound to where it would hold together. And so for his fourth book, he again had a book of equal or greater length. So they divided it up into two. He knew he was going to do that, so he teased apart the story. He released one part that only told the perspective of some of the people. So now his readers were really upset with him because he had withheld some of the story and did so for years. So that's about when HBO got involved, and they convinced him to turn it into this miniseries. It was immediately very popular. It was released in 2011. It was viewed by 3 million people that year, and it grew by a million or more every year until now. Since 2012, it has been the most pirated television show in existence has remained so every year the eighth and final season is what's now showing the reason I bring all this up is that Game of Thrones has nothing on the Bible what Gary just read to you is just the tip of the iceberg relative to the time period that we're talking about in the nation of Judah and Israel and I may die before we get a decent enough Christian director and producer that produces movies or shows of sufficient quality to capture what the Bible depicts. I know if we can get a good, solid Christian producing these, they will be very entertaining, and they don't have to sacrifice truth to make it happen, and they don't have to show a lot of nudity to make it happen. And so hopefully one day, and I believe that will happen, some really great Christian producer will start making these wonderful Bible films that will uh, stand for God's Word and truth. Now, I need to share with you, uh, many of you probably don't love the Kings and Chronicles narratives like I do, and it's very confusing. I've read it all my life, or since I was 19 and saved, but still, uh, it's easy to get confused. At this point, We have 2 Chronicles chapter 21. We're really not that far from the division of the kingdom. We're only about 80 years beyond the division of the kingdom. We now have both southern and northern because Solomon was the last one, the last monarch under which the kingdom was united. His son Rehoboam made mistakes, drove the northern kingdom, Israel, away. Uh, Jeroboam said let's go take our basketball and go home and so now we had the divided kingdom the southern kingdom Judah has been fairly stable by this point including this man's reign uh Jehoram's reign they've consisted of five kings over that 90-year period those kings were Rehoboam Abijah Asa Jehoshaphat and Jehoram and Northern Kingdom, not so stable. During the same 90 years, they've had 10 kings. Jeroboam, Nadab, they're of the tribe of Ephraim. Baasha, Elah, they're of the tribe of Issachar. Zimri, most likely a Simeonite who ruled for all of seven days, and that's Simeon's claim to fame in Israel uh, kingly history. I want to read something, and it's, to me, it's just really, really cool, this little bit of trivia. Later, in a couple of chapters, in a year, uh, we will have, or in a few years, we'll have Jehu uh, kill both kings, both the northern and the southern king, and when he does so, he then rides to Jezreel to deal with Jezebel, and this is how Jezebel greets him from the window. And the reason I'm sharing this is that this is Zimri. This is the man that was king of Israel for all of seven days from the tribe of Simeon. And this is like 45 years after this has happened. Jezebel says, now when Jehu had come to Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it. And she put paint on her eyes and adorned her head and looked through a window. Then as Jehu entered at that gate, she said, is it peace, Zimri, murderer of your master? She is taunting him, mocking him, by telling him that he's going to maybe be king for seven days. And you know what happens next. I mean, it's one of my favorite parts of the Old Testament. (laughs) Jehu says this. He looked up at the window. He didn't answer her and said, who is on my side? Who? Two or three eunuchs looked out at him. He said, throw her down. So these eunuchs pushed her right out the window and she fell to her death. So little did she know that her taunting would end in her death that quickly. And he went on, Jehu went on to reign for quite a lot while, even though he turned against the Lord who had put him there. So we had Zimri for seven days. And then we have Omri, and he, he and his line led for a while. He was most likely of Issachar, but we're not sure. Tibnai, he was most likely of Manasseh. He contended with Omri during those first four years. And so we had a civil war going on for four years, and Omri's line won. And so then we have three more kings come from Omri's line, Ahab, Ahaziah, and Joram. Joram was the the brother of Ahaziah. So now, five kings in Judah, ten kings in Israel. One of the reasons that understanding and remembering these stories can get confusing is you're now talking about the split, And yet, many kings' names are shared. You have Ahaziahs in both north and south. You have Jehoram's. You have Joash's. Um, You have kings known by different names, up to three at some points. You have kings' reigns overlap to some degree. There's like a co-regency going on for a time. It's really tough to put together a clean chronology of this, but it's still very interesting. The text that we read, that Gary read, covers an eight-year period. Jehoram's entire reign, like I said, he is that fifth king of Judah, the supposedly good, faithful kingdom that remains faithful to God. Jehoram's grandfather, Asa, was the first king of Judah since the division that is called good. The first two were called bad. Rehoboam was called bad. Abijah was called bad. They were called evil, evil kings. But Asa came along, and he was a godly man, and he was a good king. He reigned for 41 years. Near the end of his reign, he uh, fell away a little bit, but yet the gist of his reign was great. Jehoram's father, Jehoshaphat, was a godly man. He was a decent king. He reigned 25 years. Now, during the reign of Asa, Asa was fighting with the northern kingdom pretty much that whole time. But by the time Jehoshaphat came in, I believe he was tired of war and he was ready to resolve this. Let me read you a tiny snippet of 2 Chronicles 18, verse 1. Jehoshaphat had riches and honor in abundance, and by marriage he allied himself with Ahab. So Jehoshaphat resolved the ongoing dispute that the nation of Judah had with the nation of Israel by allying himself with Ahab. Now, you don't have to know much of the Bible to know Ahab was a bad guy, very bad. You read about the stories of Elijah and the death of the, all the uh, Baal priests. That was during Ahab's reign. His wife was Jezebel. They were a very wicked couple. So Jehoshaphat, though, made peace with that man. And not only did he make peace, he made peace by marrying his son into Ahab's family. His son, the man in our story, Jehoram, married his daughter, Athaliah. And so Athalia was the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel. A year later, a year after the end of what I've read in 2 Chronicles 21, Ahaziah, the one who took over at the end of this period, dies... And Athaliah immediately kills her own grandchildren to take over the throne. And she does then rule a reign of terror for six years in Judah from Jerusalem. Now, Jehoram, this man in our text, was nothing like his father Jehoshaphat nor his grandfather Asa. He was every bit like his father-in-law Ahab. Gary read this, and I have to reread it. It's verse 20. He was 32 years old when he became king. He reigned in Jerusalem eight years, and to no one's sorrow departed. And that was after a two year bout of his intestines coming out. But this guy was hated by everybody. And this is actually not surprising. Proverbs 29.2 reads, When the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. And note that that includes the evil people that would probably prefer a bad king. But when a wicked man rules, the people groan because wicked rulers will oppress people. And this man, Jehoram, did oppress people. We could focus for this on a variety of texts, a variety of topics. And when I was selecting the text, that's what I was doing. I was going through the recent reading Uh, from my annual Bible reading, and I was looking at what I'd found most exciting. That's pretty much what drives me to study. If I find something and highlight it and say, this is really interesting, I need to know more about this. And so when I was called to preach suddenly, I thought, okay, well, let me go figure out what I want to spend time on. So it could have been about many things. It could have been about the anointing of Jehu. That is just an amazing story, how Jehu is anointed and then he ends up killing both regents in the same day. It could have been about Athaliah's reign of terror when her son Ahaziah is killed by Jehu. It could be about the rescue of the son that she doesn't know exists, that hides in the temple for six years and then is revealed by Jehoiada the high priest. It could be about that hiding and that reveal. Or it could be what occurs later, sadly, when that little boy grows up to be a king and he reigns for a long time and Jehoiada dies, And he falls away and the leaders of Judah come to him and it is implied that they don't want to serve God anymore and so he abides by their desires when Zedekiah Jehoiada's son rebukes him for this he has him stoned and so see what is ironic about that is that stoning is for heretics And he is stoning his very own high priesthood who is trying to remain loyal to God. When he is the one that instituted the cleansing of the temple when he was about 20 years old. So he fell away and he fell away hard. All of those could be topics to have discussed today. But there is one verse that I want this really to orient around and it's verse 3. Their father gave them great gifts of silver and gold and precious things. Speaking of the seven sons with fortified cities in Judah. But he gave the kingdom to Jehoram because he was the firstborn. And the very next verse explains that Jehoram then killed all six of his brothers because he did not want to ever be contested for him being the king. Even though he was the oldest, even though he felt he deserved it, even though his father felt he deserved it, he did not want anybody else ever interfering with him. So he killed his brothers. Jehoshaphat, his father, was a good, godly man. And when you read several of the preceding chapters, chapters 17 through 20, you see Jehoshaphat's faith. He had great, great faith, but he had no wisdom, apparently, when it came to how he made agreements with Ahab. He married his uh, son off to their evil daughter, Athaliah. These were horrible mistakes Jehoshaphat made and it ruined the kingdom for a time so today's message is about leadership succession because that's what it got me thinking about it's obvious that Jehoshaphat chose Jehoram only because he was the oldest yet he had to know that his son was wicked by this point yet he chose to ignore that reality I want to talk briefly about the first three kings of the kingdom before it was divided, Saul, David, and Solomon. And so first I'll read to you concerning Solomon being made king. This is from 1 Samuel 9, verses 1 and 2. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Becheroth, the son of Aphiah, A Benjamite a mighty man of power and he had a choice and handsome son whose name was Saul there was not a man more handsome than he among the children of Israel from his shoulders upward he was taller than any of the people we know God chose Saul we know why God chose Saul we have the two criteria in our text he was tall and he was handsome that's why Saul was chosen to be king And we know where that led the whole kingdom, into his tyranny. 4% of the men in America are 6'2 or over. 4%, 1 in 25 people. Yet, 30% of the CEOs in the Fortune 500 are 6'2 or over. That's pretty amazing. That is a biased statistic. It's reflecting the bias of our culture. We value tall, handsome men. We want them in positions of power. God gave them Saul. He's pointing out our own weaknesses as a people. Our sinful hearts wants this. And we keep getting it and getting it and getting it. The uh, years ago when we were in the PCA and I was a newly minted elder, I went down to a city to which I should not name, and on the way, I was traveling with Phil and with Glenn Durham, our associate pastor at the time, and Glenn brought me up to speed on some controversy that was going on in our presbytery. It turns out that there were two men that were involved in controversy that they had to be called on the carpet for, so to speak, and Glenn summarized the two men like this. Now, you had to know Glenn. He was a he was a hoot. But he would say, "The one man is loved by everybody in our presbytery." And he was. I mean, he was a very winsome man, tall, handsome, very eloquent. "The other man is despised by our presbytery. Nobody likes him. He's really a jerk." So you had both of these men that were being called on the carpet for unrelated issues and i have to hand it to the presbytery in the end the tall and handsome man did not repent and we had to bring him under discipline the man that was the jerk humbled himself cried in our presence and we restored him it was just a beautiful illustration of not being persuaded by the tall and some or the jerky character you go with the facts you go with what's going on and so god i i felt was honored by what had happened there but we are susceptible to this next i want to read about david and this is just a few chapters on this is from 1 samuel 16 verses 6 and 7 and this is when uh the prophet samuel is in their home And he says this, so it was when they came that he looked at Eliab, now Eliab is the firstborn, and said, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Eliab must have been tall and handsome. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature because I have refused him, for the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And so then David was chosen. So God chose both Saul and David. He chose Saul to show the people that they make bad choices. And he chose David to show them that he'll make better choices. If only they would trust him. Then we have Solomon. And Solomon is kind of an enigma. This is interesting. So our next reference is from 1 Chronicles 22. And I'll read verses 6 through 10. This is David. Then he called for his son Solomon and charged him to build a house for the Lord God of Israel. And David said to Solomon, My son, as for me, it was in my mind to build a house to the name of the Lord my God. But the word of the Lord came to me, saying, You have shed much blood and have made great wars. You shall not build a house for my name, because you have shed much blood on the earth in my sight. Listen to this next verse carefully. Behold, A son shall be born to you who shall be a man of rest, and I will give him rest from all his enemies all around him. His name shall be Solomon, for I will give peace and quietness to Israel in his days. Now, did Solomon exist at the point that God is telling David this? No, because it's future tense. Now we know, and I admit I had not realized that until I researched this, But God chose this, tells David, but now what does David have to do? Is it his next son that's born? We don't know. But he had to name a son Solomon. He knew then that that would be the king. And we know the rest of the story. We know that Amnon dies. Absalom murders him. Absalom dies in the revolt. Another son, the second son, by the name of Chileab or Daniel, disappears. We think it's likely he died in his youth. Then we have the next son, Adonijah, that also wanted the throne. So somewhere, though, down the line is Solomon. God chose the name. David chose the boy, the baby. So the kingdom transitions in the Bible. Nearly all occur from father to son. And they're really not mentioned that it's the eldest son, but I believe because it's not mentioned, it's likely. This is the only one where firstborn is spelled out as clearly as it is. Now, sometimes the kingdom transitioned from uh, brother to brother, and for the most part, peacefully. Sometimes not so peacefully. But others were due to God directing prophetically some coup. But the newly anointed king also sometimes reigned, like I mentioned earlier, as a co-monarch. And so it can kind of blur the lines between when one king took over and another uh, stepped down. But so enough for now the biblical kings, the biblical uh, transitions from one king to the other. I want to talk a little more broadly now, expand the scope. We'll still stay within government, within civil government. But long ago, I read the book, And it's still my favorite book after like 20 years of having read it. And if you've never read it, I do recommend it. It is de Tocqueville's Democracy in America. He wrote it. He traveled the country in 1835 and 1836, and then he wrote this book. The reason I like it so much is that he goes into incredible detail about life in America. He describes county governments, he describes how courts work, he describes how the federal government is working. He traveled the country during the latter part of Andrew Jackson's uh, presidency in the mid-1830s. But uh, what I also liked about his book is that he explained aristocracy in a way that then made sense to me. It made sense to me that people still valued aristocracies in the world. Even in the early 1800s, even now, now pretty much aristocracies have been, uh, rem- all their teeth have been removed. You know, kings and princes and queens can't bite people now like they used to. But yet, in the time that he was writing, they were still fairly strong. Some of the European monarchies were still pretty strong. And yet, he explained power where power resides in a democratic republic, where power resides in an aristocracy, it was very illuminating. And so obviously, successions of power, one person passing authority to another, is problematic in our world, in our culture. And we in America have not been absolved of that difficulty. So if you study the presidential transitions in this country it's remarkable how varied many of them are so we began of course with George Washington he was unanimously elected by the electoral college electoral college the electrical college in in 1788 and then again in 1792 John Adams served as his vice president then we have the run-up to 1796 the Third presidential election. By this time, parties, factions have begun to materialize. Many people said, Ooh, we hate those, we hate those, we want them to go away, but they were kind of becoming the reality. You had all of these papers being written by the Federalists and the Anti Federalists opposing one another, big government, small government, all that. So that bled into the election of 1796. John Adams was the president, Thomas Jefferson, was the vice president, and they were not in any way on the same page. And the electrical college, the electrical college worked like that back then. It, you didn't have to be on the same page. Now, there was a stipulation in the Constitution that should the presidency be vacant, the vice president would fulfill that role. So there was this, but, well, I don't like my president. I'm the vice president. I can just have him taken out and I can now have my way. So people figure that out pretty quickly, that parties were here to stay and that we had to deal with this reality. Now Adams was run out, probably for good reason, let's not get into that, but in 1800 Jefferson comes in and the 12th amendment is passed near the end of his first four year term. And that says that we will now have the president and the VP be of the same party to where they won't have this possibility anyway for assassination to just put me into power right like this because I disagree so much with this guy. Supposedly they're going to be on the same page, so to speak. This then leads to us discussing the succession to the presidency. Do you know over time that the succession to the presidency has gone through changes? So initially, all it was was the VP. And then frankly, the VP Office was often empty. If you look through the history of America, years would go by where there was no vice president, so it put the presidency at jeopardy because now he doesn't have a VP to move in there. But uh, it was tested. This this constitutional element was tested in 1841, and that's why I have this book here. I couldn't pass this up. I saw it at Sam's the other day, and it has all the inaugural addresses up through uh, Donald Trump's. And I want to read the first paragraph from John Tyler's address to the nation upon assuming the presidency in April 9, 1841. Uh, William Henry Harrison had been president all of 30 days. He got sick when he gave his inaugural address, suffered for a month, and died. So he didn't have a very long presidency. And then John Tyler took over, and this is what he said. Fellow citizens, before my arrival at the seat of government, the painful communication was made to you by the officers presiding over the several departments of the deeply regretted death of William Henry Harrison, late President of the United States. Upon him, you had conferred your suffrages for the first office in your gift, and had selected him as your chosen instrument to correct and reform all such errors and abuses as had manifested themselves from time to time in the practical operation of the government. It's interesting to see how wordy people are. While standing at the threshold of this great work, he has, by the dispensation of an all-wise providence, been removed from amongst us, And by the provisions of the Constitution, the efforts to be directed to the accomplishing of this vitally important task have devolved upon myself. This same occurrence has subjected the wisdom and sufficiency of our institutions to a new test. For the first time in our history, the person elected to the Vice Presidency of the United States by the happening of a contingency provided for in the Constitution has had devolved upon him the Presidential Office. The spirit of faction which is directly opposed to the spirit of a lofty patriotism may find in this occasion for assaults upon my administration, and in succeeding under circumstances so sudden and unexpected and to responsibilities so greatly augmented to the administration of public affairs, I shall place in the intelligent and patriotism of the people my only sure reliance, My earnest prayer shall be to constantly address to the all-wise and all-powerful being who made me and by whose dispensation I am called to the high office of president of this confederacy, understandingly to carry out the principles of that constitution which I have sworn to protect, preserve, and defend. Now, that was a long quote. This isn't necessarily a civics lesson, but John Tyler was challenged because He did take over the presidency. He became president. But there were people that said he went too far, that while the responsibilities of being president obviously fell to him by the way the Constitution was worded, it was only the responsibilities, not the title. So they said he should have been referred to as acting president. The Whig Party, who he separated from a few months later because he said that the president should be above party politics, they began calling him his accidentcy. His own party maligned him in this way. So now, I just want to point out, though, that you have president, you have vice president. You also now have the problem, what if both the president and the vice president get taken out? You know, they're, they're in the same jet or whatever, and they die. Or the same meeting. Well, who else takes over? Well, it could be the Speaker of the House, the leader of the Senate. It could be someone from the Cabinet. Well, originally, for a long time, for decades, it was the Cabinet in order. But it was in 1947 that uh, Truman got that changed, and it became the Speaker of the House. And some people say that it's the Speaker of the House and not the leader of the Senate because he liked the Speaker of the House, and he didn't like the leader of the Senate so it's interesting that all of this party politics still plays and all of these things but so now succession this succession to important offices that we can't leave vacant like this is a big deal who's going to lead us Uh, I like uh, you know many of you probably don't know Ken Cope but um, I learned a lot from Ken about government how I can love my country but be somewhat distrustful of my government And uh, we did a lot of reading back in the early days of Dominion and it was very helpful to me. So now though governments, civil governments, aren't the only entities that need to be concerned about succession. Businesses, churches are the same, have the same issues. At uh, my former employer, key executives were not allowed to travel together because they did not want them all getting killed in mass. So they didn't want a critical mass of all of the leadership to be on the same plane. They had to fly different planes. And that's funny, because we had private jets. So I guess if they were all going to the same place, they'd have to take multiple private jets, but I guess that's the way it was. Forbes uh, wrote about, I think it was about five years ago, that businesses fail 20% more often within two years of the boss's death. These are probably smaller businesses, or even mid-sized, where this one person had the vision, and now that vision has been uh, erased. Business continuity captures this concept, this risk. I had a neighbor here that worked in business continuity for FDR for over 10 years, and then he went back east to work in that same capacity for Lowe's back in North Carolina. See, our topic, though, is more about choosing the right people. I I focused on verse 3, where we were talking about why Jehoram was chosen by his father Jehoshaphat to be king. Why was he chosen? Because he was the oldest son. Even though he was evil, he still chose him. So now, I'm reading a book to my wife, and now she's left me. And for those of you that are visiting, she's out in California, she'll be back hopefully. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, I'm reading a book to her called Zoo Nebraska. Did anybody ever visit Royal Nebraska when they had a zoo there for about 25 years, I think, 20 years or more? Anybody ever visit that zoo? Well, you're all the reason that it failed, I guess. (laughs) So there's no zoo there now. But this man, Dick Haskin, um, was he attended at Lincoln, he was working at the Folsom Children's Zoo down there, and he just had a gift for interacting with their primates. From junior high, he had loved interacting with animals, and he watched a movie where Diane Fossey is over in Africa, in the Congo, attempting to protect these gorillas in the mist, and he falls in love with the whole primate concept. So he goes to school, he volunteers at the zoo, and he just connects with this chimp at the time that the zoo had called Reuben. That was its name, and yet, He went to a conference in San Diego, met with a bunch of primatologists, met Diane Fossey. She was so impressed with this young man that she offered him an unpaid, but an 18-month internship with her over in Africa. This was very unusual, but his employer the Folsom Zoo down there had sent him to this conference and he just felt so guilt-stricken that if he were to get poached by her and just give notice and take off he would regret it so he bypassed it she picked another guy and then about six eight months later she dies she's murdered over in Africa and her uh, the government says poachers didn't do it her assistant did this assistant that was this intern now he never faced trial for that but this man, Dick Haskin, held some credit to that he, he, because he kind of had had conversations with that guy and he knew him a little bit. But anyway, I'm getting a little bit off track. So he's now at Lincoln, yet they want to get rid of the chimpanzees. He wants to form a primate research center and he negotiates a deal with his hometown of Royal Nebraska, population 81, to house this monkey, this chimp. So he goes there and with great fanfare, he's going to do this, he's going to do this, he's going to do this. He's got volunteers coming in, he's having all these fundraisers, but four years passes, he's working 18 to 20 hours a day. He has nobody that he can really rely upon to take over for him, and he's tapped out. He gives over the directorship of this whole organization to a board that he'd formed, but He just was not a networker he was not a fundraiser he wasn't a great communicator he could talk to the chimp fine it's people that he had troubles with so he ends up selling out and for them to build a zoo the very thing he did not himself want to do he wanted a primate research center he did not want a zoo but that's how it went now I'm only halfway through the story I can't tell you the whole thing so buy the book or I'll tell you in a few months now, I want to share, though, why that's important, because see, he founded a board of trustees. He, he built a board of directors. Most of those people didn't know they were on those boards. He just did it without their knowledge. I mean, it's just, you know, you, your name gets added. And then, and then suddenly, someone else tells you, as, as you're one of these board members, that you're on this person's board, or you happen to hear about it. So he had various people within the first year write to him to say, I am not on your board. Please remove my name. And uh, he would get offended that they wanted off of his board. Like I said, communication was not his strong point. So he had no viable way for this thing to succeed. He was not the right person to do a bunch of it. He was the right person to interact with these primates, but he needed a whole support organization. And yet he went off on a limb, and it, it was trouble from day one, and he was running himself ragged. So that was not a wise plan that he had done. It's just, it was a dream, a vision. We always want to be able to develop leaders. And some people are very good at leading, some people are natural at it. Um, My son, my older son, Josiah, was working at Panda, most of you know. And he rose to management. I mean, he got the lead at the counter, associate manager, um, managing a store. He's 19 years old, and he's managing the store, running around. I mean, it was shocking to to me to think that this 19-year-old could be doing all that. Then they start sending him to this store, and to that store, and to that store. They had a practice where they would identify people that they identified as hypo, H-I-P-O, high potential people. He was one of those people. And yet he as a manager was responsible then for identifying for his higher ups people that he felt had high potential who could run stores. They really burn through people at Panda. I don't mean to speak badly about them, but you know they, they pay them fairly well, but they work you long hours. The company I was at, Union Pacific Railroad, did the same thing. On our annual feed-up to management, we would always identify the people that we did not want to risk losing, and also these people that we felt could one day rise to management ranks because they had it together. They worked hard. They knew what they were doing. They were competent. So any good company will do that, identify people for potential leadership in the future. The reason I say this Is that now we've covered civil government and business but really we are faced with these same same challenges in the church we need people to lead the church competent people we call them deacons and elders and so we're always looking for people that have the ability to then rise to those levels the Bible speaks of it being a a a, a admirable thing to want to be an elder but You have to get at the root of why people want to be an elder. It could be just that they want to be up here, be thought important. When in reality, we know that the elders are the servants. We are the first servants in our church. We're the ones, we and the deacons are the ones, that are the ones that are to not just do everything. We we want to get you enlisted to do stuff too. But yet, we have to answer to God for this. And we can't do it by running roughshod over people. We have to work with people. We have to love on people, pray for people. And so churches and parachurches have the same risk of failure that businesses do, that nations do, civil governments do, by falling into turmoil, civil war, when they have difficulty in transitioning leadership. When D. James Kennedy died in 2007, it came kind of suddenly, and it wreaked havoc amongst his ministries. Now they seem to be running pretty stable. They formed a new organization called D. James Kennedy Ministries, and they have all of what he had been doing continuing on, but it took a while to get there. Others have faced similar challenges. When R.J. Rushduni died, it put a dent. And the thing is, is that giving stops. You know, the giving is typically tied to someone, some persona who had founded this thing. And there is a, especially if you're a nonprofit, there can be a significant dip in that when the founder dies, because all of the many people knew this person. They don't necessarily know you or whoever's taken his place. Uh, Greg Bonson, if you knew him, um, interesting theologian, uh, OPC pastor, PCA pastor out in Southern California. And uh, when he passed away suddenly, And I hate to bring that up because it was a heart-related thing, but he'd had a really significant heart problem for years, and he knew he was at risk. But uh, he passed suddenly. They formed the SCCTS, I think it was called, Southern California something-something Theological Seminary. That then transitioned into Bonson Theological Seminary about eight or nine years ago. That transitioned uh, to Share Christ Theological Seminary. But the death of people has an impact not only upon the immediate family but if they are important and they're involved in running something then it has an impact upon that as well I'm facing that now it's perhaps part of the reason that I also chose this topic my father-in-law out in Southern California ran a nonprofit called uh, Christ Center Gospel Mission it's still going now but he ran it himself for 30 years over 30 years So it's really hard to make that transition when this one person ran it all that time, and his board was kind of like what I'd mentioned about the Zoo Nebraska. All of his original trustees are dead and gone. He lived to be 92. And the directors were people that he really never required much of. They didn't have active roles in what he was doing. And so he, though, wanted to see it go on after he died. And I encouraged him several times to make it clear what you want. Get it down on paper. But he never did. Of course, we all die unexpectedly, I guess. And so uh, now we're faced with wanting that to continue. That's partly why my wife is out there. We're taking forever to clean up that home because we're trying to be very courteous of all of his papers. So, when you're dealing with this when you're looking forward to leadership you have to deal with a couple things planning for the future and training for the future so first planning for the future the trustees the board you need to understand how the organization works you need to have it running on a sound footing so when you wanna have something continue you better make sure that it's doing well now and not all people ensure that that's occurring trustees and directors trust is in the word trustees direct is in the word directors, and they have meaning. To trust is to trust someone with the vision of that organization. Who are we? Why are we here? What are we doing? Where are we going? You trust your trustees to own that vision. Directors are responsible for the day-to-day stuff. They need to get stuff done. They need to direct the work, get the work done. So if your organization, if you want it to succeed, if you want it to thrive and grow and do what you envision for it, you need to make sure that the right people are doing the right things. Have people that are active, that know what's going on. Busy day-to-day activities interfere extensively with planning. And so you have to make time for it. You have to set aside some time each quarter, each year, to make sure that you're progressing those plans. Because as each quarter and year pass and you haven't done it, it becomes more important. It becomes more important. It becomes more important. Until you die, then it's not important to you at all, is it? You have better or worse things on your mind now. Planning for the future, training for the future. All of us in the homeschool area have probably memorized this. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. We love that. That is a promise from God. Our sermon title is Leadership Succession. And so one aspect of leadership succession that's obviously critical is to train people have people ready to take on leadership roles so it's a necessary element of training leaders and having them ready and yet you have to train the vision first and this is where Jehoshaphat failed miserably he had his son Jehoram marry Athaliah the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel. You have to ask yourself, what on earth was he thinking? How could he think that good would come of this? And when you read all of Jehoshaphat, how much he loved God, you see that he loved God from his heart. How could he be such a fool in making these decisions? But, you know, maybe one day we'll know. He failed to establish the proper vision for his son, his son then killed his six brothers, ending all of Jehoshaphat's um, opportunities. So he thought, right? We know that the one that escaped by uh, Jehoshaphat saved. Now, though, training alone is not enough. Jehoiada trained Joash up from a baby, and he maintained a walk with the Lord, very faithful, for 30, 40 years. But then suddenly he fell away and drastically He gave the order to have Zedekiah stoned when he was rebuked. This, to me, brings up this whole concept of nature or nurture. Nature or nurture. So in other words, can we blame failures on who they are as a person or how they were brought up? It's their environment. We are very big on blaming the environment right now in our culture. And yet, is there bad seed involved here. Bad seed doesn't grow good. I'm growing three patches of grass, or I'm trying to in my backyard right now. I had pulled out some stumps. One patch is growing fine. It's just started coming up. New grass is beautiful, such a beautiful thing. God plants all that right in that seed. I have two other patches that aren't growing at all. I'm like, well, this is weird. I planted them within like two minutes of one another. One is in the shade though, and I I thought, well, who knew that New grass needed shade to grow. I don't know. I, I might have to shade my, my new, other new grass. But so see, the seeds, there is sin in the seeds. It must be eliminated. So see, we have Jehoram, the king that we went through. So see, was his about nature or nurturing? He had a good father. He had a good grandfather. He had a horribly evil wife and father-in-law. So we had a good nature, but bad nurturing. But then Joash, down the line, Ahaziah's son who's saved, or uh, the other son who's saved, he had bad nature because his dad was evil, and yet he was nurtured in Jehoiada's home for decades, leading to what appeared to be great, great fruit till this horrible falling away. So see, we want to avoid this, but... We are human. We make mistakes, but we also don't know the future, and we fail to do things that we probably ought to do, and we don't even know it. So what is the answer? In John Owen's uh, treatise on mortification of sin, he emphasizes that you must be killing sin every day, or sin will be killing you. It's a constant war we're in. So that's what any of these men faced. And it's what these men that rose to kingships that were initially good and then fell away were failing to do. They were failing to acknowledge the fact that they themselves were sinners, and they had to keep fighting against this, humbling themselves amongst their fellow man, humbling themselves before God. Earlier in the baptismal message, I quoted from Matthew 3, And John had rebuked the Sadducees and Pharisees, and he warned them that they must not have confidence in the flesh. We cannot have confidence in the flesh. We are tempted to. We loved God yesterday, last week, last year, ten years ago. I served him wonderfully in my youth. But see, that's not today. And we must keep crucifying sin every day, especially as a leader. You have to. To then be potentially generating better leaders than you are yourself. We all have heard the recent tale of Joshua Harris renouncing his faith. He wrote that runaway bestseller, I Kiss Dating Goodbye, went on to write another book about how he met his wife, but here now he's left his wife, he's abandoned her, he's left his pastorate, he's abandoning the faith he is dead fruit he grew up in a Christian home nature and nurture were both good for him and yet he has turned away just like Joash, this boy that was saved we must be fighting against sin this is about leadership succession and yet it, it's about selecting good leaders and yet you grow them we must grow them We don't just pluck them off the tree ready. We had to to watch that thing from a a flower become what it is that we can now harvest and be nurtured by. So we ought to train our young people in godliness. We ought to train our young men in leadership. Character development and skills training both are essential to developing leaders. We need to train up good leaders so that we have some to choose some when we need them. And we need to practice the daily mortification of sin in order to remain good leaders. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your involving yourself in our world, not leaving us in our sin, but having your word created to embody wisdom as we just learned about as we studied Proverbs last Sunday. We thank you, Father, For the fact that you love us, that you care for your creation, that you watch out for us. We are filled with sin, but we pray, Lord, that you would crucify that sin, that you would send your Holy Spirit to fill us and drive the love of sin out of us, and fill us with wisdom, uh, develop our characters, and give us skills. We give you thanks, Father, for who you are and for what you're doing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.